The headlines that hit us each day can feel so daunting, so looming. So we thought it'd tell us that a little bit more light to guide us might be just what we need. The Check-In is a weekly podcast with the Telos staff, reviewing headlines from the past week. We discuss current events through the lens of what it means to be a peacemaker today. All right, welcome to the check-in. My name's David Gunger, checking in from New York City. Sharon, where are you checking in from? I'm checking in from Northwest Washington, D.C. Sarah, where are you checking in from? Good morning from Washington, D.C. Jack. I'm checking in from a quiet and solemn Jaffa. Greg. Good morning from Gotham. And our host, David Cadaba. Checking in from Washington, D.C. This week we have um, some interesting headlines to dive into, so we're going to go ahead and just get started. Um, This week actually marked the one-year anniversary of the so-called Abraham Accords, which were the series of diplomatic agreements between Arab countries and Israel to normalize relations signed last fall, August, and a couple months after. The first was the UAE, which struck a deal to normalize relations with Israel in exchange for them not to move forward with formally annexing the West Bank. Soon after that, other nations followed, including Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco over the next few months, although the Sudanese deal is still being finalized. So these new diplomatic relations were a significant development. Um, Jordan and Egypt were the only two Arab nations that had relations with Israel before these agreements, as the rest of the Arab world held back diplomatic recognition of the state of Israel until progress was made on the status of the occupation and peace with Palestinians. So here's the question, and Greg, I want to direct this to you. These nations held back recognition in order to see progress made on the conflict, and then ostensibly, at least for the the UAE, made a deal with the Israeli government in order to protect, in a sense, Palestinians from annexation. But now, one year after these deals were made, has there been any notable change in the conditions of the conflict for Palestinians? Or in other sense, have these deals accomplished what they set out to do? Well, that's a loaded question, because what they set out to do and what people said they were about might be two different things. But to remove my cynicism about your question for a moment, I would say that, one, the situation for Palestinians on the ground has changed. It's gotten worse. Um, It's incrementally worse day by day, not just in terms of the Israeli occupation control over their lives, but also the failure of their own leadership as well, which pains me very much to say. But we saw these recent incidents with the PA cracking down and in one case murdering um, a dissident, somebody who was critical of President Abbas. We saw the postponement of the Palestinian elections after 16 years with a million new people registered. But the bottom line with the Abraham Accords and these so-called peace accords is, is you know, going back to that question that you asked, what were they... What did they set out to accomplish? And they weren't really about peace, not at least in the way that we define the word peace. So we say one of our third principle of peacemaking is justice. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. uh, said there can be no peace without justice. Peace and justice are intertwined. So the measure of a peace agreement is not whether it just makes things nice and calm, but does it advance 
mutual flourishing for everyone concerned. In the case of the Abraham Accords, <clears throat> it was a deal between countries that weren't at war. They didn't have diplomatic relations, but the UAE, these Gulf countries, these signatories, these Arab signatories to the agreement with Israel had been cooperating for many, many years um, under the table. They just hadn't been doing it publicly. Why? Well, historically, um, <clears throat> there's been this, this unified block um, around sort of this idea that no normalization with Israel until there is some uh, peace with the right Palestinians, rights for Palestinians. And that motivated um, the Arab stance towards Israel um, for, for many, many years. There's a huge story there we can go into on another podcast. But in practice, in recent years, um, that sort of bulwark for Palestinian rights was eroded. Um, it began with the conclusion of the um, Egyptian peace treaty um, in in 1980 with Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin and President Carter, which was quite significant um, on its terms. But the, the one, you know, the one point regarding the Palestinians with that treaty was that the that they were left out. That was the last stumbling block. Anwar Sadat, the Egyptian president, agreed to sign that deal as as long as he could, you know, um, after he relented on this demand to have some advancement for Palestinian rights. Same thing, similar thing, it was slightly different, but similar happened with Jordan in 1994. And this deal is just a culmination of this process with, with nations that have arms and trade interests. They have a shared enemy that they identify with Iran that wanted to get together and do th everything above the table um, <clears throat> that they were doing under the table for all of these years. So the, the big loser in all of this really is the Palestinians. What do the Palestinians have? They don't have anything. They have the ability to say no. Um, for many years, they had something called the Arab Peace Initiative, which was an initiative that offered full relations with Israel from all of the Arab nations and most Islamic nations around the world in exchange for a negotiated agreement with Israel that would establish a Palestinian state somewhere along the 1967 lines with a capital in, in East Jerusalem and justice for refugees. Um, Parameters consistent with what we call the two-state solution. But now, a year after the Abraham Accords, we see predictably, as we predicted, we have an FAQ on this, Atelos, which you can see in the show notes, I'm sure, that, look, this has not advanced the peace process. This peace process, if it were ever alive, is more dead than ever. So, Jack, how, how have Palestinians viewed these deals? As Greg was talking, they've been kept out of negotiations in the past. So what, how are Palestinians understanding the, the warming ties between Israel and, and these nations? Yeah, I would agree with um, what, a lot of what Greg said. Palestinians felt betrayed by these, these specific Arab leaders, but I wouldn't say disappointed because they didn't expect better. Um, for many, it was also a confirmation of what you know, many of us already knew, that many of these Gulf states had been meeting with Israeli politicians, and Israeli tech executives to close business deals um, previous to the Abraham Accords. So, and you know, as Greg mentioned, all this. So, for Palestinians, if you if you listen to kind of the street on the grassroots level, many would say this was a way for Netanyahu and those in the U.S. administration at the time around President Trump to use these already existing relationships to marginalize to just marginalize Palestinians and the Palestinian struggle for freedom. Because for a long time, um, you couldn't really um, 
divide or separate the Palestinian struggle from the larger Arab world. And, and so Netanyahu kind of came up with this, with this plan and said, here, we don't really have to give up any land or anything to the Palestinians and we could still have peace with, um, our Arab nation, our, uh, Arab neighbors. Um, so I think ultimately Palestinians knew that this wouldn't move the region forward. It might move some business relationships forward. It might, it might win some political points, but it wouldn't move things forward on the conflict. As we saw just uh, this past May, um, we also saw that uh, on the level of the populations of, the, of these nations and, uh, and Israel, there's still a cold peace. There isn't really um, an exchange of, uh, of tourists. So even though these, uh, some of these places opened up, we didn't see a lot of visitors uh, from, from these Gulf states like we saw Israelis visiting uh, these states. So um, it, it's seen as a one-way street almost with, with only kind of the top tier of, of these states um, benefiting from the relationship. But so for many Israeli Jews, like this was, you know, who feel really isolated in the Arab world, not only was this a, a moment where they felt perhaps more welcome, I'm wondering, but also, I think perhaps could it have reinforced this negative perception that like, oh, the Palestinian issue is an issue we just don't have to deal with. You know, for most Israeli Jews, they don't even see it on a day to day basis and they ignore it and they just believe it's going to last forever. Could you say something about that? What, well, what I was trying to say is that we didn't see the reciprocation of the visit. So we saw a lot of Israelis going to, let's say, Dubai as soon as things opened up. But we didn't see a lot of um, Emiratis coming to Israel. Uh, we, you'd see, I mean, there would be Facebook posts of two or three men that would be walking together in northern Tel Aviv, and that would be a big deal. Whereas, um, I believe in the first few months, thousands of Israelis, by the way, a, a, you know, a large portion of which were Palestinian citizens of Israel that, that visited, because they too wanted our long, our, our long um, anticipating going to visit some neighboring Arab countries. I think that's a dream of many, and especially those that you know weren't attuned to, to the politics of it all. So, so that's a number also to take into consideration. But for the most part, I think it would be fair to call this still a, a cold, um, a cold peace, uh, similar to, to the ones that Israel uh, has with Jordan and Egypt. Going off of that, Jack, too, some, one of the reasons that the Sudanese agreement is still being finalized is because there's been mass protests against the deal among the population and you know this disconnect between what the people on the street want and what the leaders want and so this question for for maybe you jack or or you greg is what what were the intentions of these nations if it you know wasn't ultimately for the palestinian people and the palestinian cause what were their intentions in signing this deal and then even further also that you know just recognizing the fact that the u.s brokered these deals and the you know the former administration you know was really forward with these going forward. And so I'm curious to know, what was the U.S.'s angle in, in pushing these forward as well? Dcat, I love this question. Thank you so much. Because um, this really gets to the heart of effective peacemaking. So I'm going to answer that question very quickly, directly, and then pull it out to a general principle that I think it's really important for all of us to focus on as we consider what real consequential peacemaking looks like. 
Um, and so first, you know, a lot of these nations had their self-interest. The Gulf nations, they don't see the Palestinian issue as their fight. It's a thorn in their side. They see Israel as one of the regions, um, the regional powers that ha they share a common enemy with, Iran. And so they want to ally with them and they share common economic interests with. Um, and those economic interests include trade, and they want to be able to do that um, more effectively. And so the Palestinian issue for a lot of the leaders um, in the, the, the Gulf states um, doesn't have the same resonance that it once did, uh, even if it does with the populations on the street, you know, in, in, in the Arab world. And similarly, some of these other signatories, they saw this interest there as well. The Trump administration um, I have to say, you know, did some really unusual things, some some bullish things like moving the embassy from Tel Aviv, the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. We have all sorts of information on that, but has been acting pretty consistent with U.S. foreign policy regarding the Middle East and Israel. It's just been a lot more sort of brash and brazen about it. And so the reality here and so so I'm saying that because, you know, President Obama, for example, signed the largest aid deal, military aid deal in American history um, when he was leaving office, a 10-year, uh, you know, $30 billion plus deal um, with Israel, like, for example. So, you know, to, to, to cast these folks as on different sides of this issue, is, there's, there's some significant difference and nuance there. But what the Trump administration was doing was, in general, consistent with the larger trajectory here. And the U.S. wanted, and particularly President Trump, wanted to advance this idea of you know this economic peace. They wanted to advance <coughs> um, Israeli interests regionally. They wanted to sidestep the Palestinian issue because um, they believed that there was you know, there was no path forward in, in ways consistent with um, the right wing Israeli interests that they were publicly uh, allied with. Um, so there were a lot of interests there. But the bigger question for me here is what this means about peacemaking generally. So notice what I just said. Maybe some of that was a little complicated and obtuse, but there was something really clear. All of these parties were acting within their perceived best self-interest. When we talk about peacemaking, so much of how we talk about it is other-focused. It's sacrificial love. It's, you know, it's all of these big terms and ideas that are moralized. And I think that's important, and I don't want to devalue that. But alongside that, all of us as individuals, as communities, as tribes, as nations, we are self-interested. The concept of mutual flourishing that we're working towards is one in which all of us have equal opportunity to fully actualize ourselves and our community, one in which we have agency. So if we're talking about sustainable peacemaking in the real world and not some imaginary world, we have to focus on how does this meet not just my self-interest, but the other party's self-interest. Where is that nexus of self-interest, of what some have historically called enlightened self-interest? There's a lot of complications with this question, but the reason why I'm ra raising this is that everything all of us do, no matter the stories we tell ourselves, we're always looking through this lens ultimately of like how this works for us and if we're trying if we're signing some deal that ultimately doesn't get us to a place that we define as good we're not going to sign that deal unless we're heavily coerced right so there's another calculation of self-interest i don't want to be tortured i don't want to die okay like i'll sign this deal so the point here is you know that we have to consider 
always, when we're thinking about peacemaking seriously, what are the various interests that people have in play? And how, how can we advance those interests? Not all maximally, but how can we make sure that everybody has a stake in this game, a win-win scenario, not a win-lose one. Something we talk about too is that we we envision a future where Palestinians and Israelis um, can enjoy dignity, security, and freedom alike in equal measure. And maybe this is my last question about this topic, but we often hear in America that Israel's you know the only democracy in the Middle East, and it and it lives in a sea of hostility. Um, but I'm curious, you know, as as we're talking, as Israel has made relations with these nations, has it changed their perception of their own security? Um, and as a result, has that actually brought us closer in, in some ways to a future where all can enjoy that? Is this helping in any way? Or is it, you know, is it actually just pushing the, the conflict further down into the future? Well, it's pushing the situation that we sometimes call a conflict down the road. It's ignoring it. This is a shell game. There may be some positives that allow for coalitions to emerge to confront other kinds of threats. But regarding the Palestinians, make no mistake, this is a bait and switch. It's a peace deal without justice. It is sanctifying an unholy situation in the Holy Land a reality in which one group of people controls the other. That's not to say there aren't positive things about this agreement. There are many positive things that could come out of it. But if we're looking at the situation on the ground as it relates to Israelis and Palestinians, this is just reinforcing, I think, for many Israelis that they don't even need to think about the Palestinian issue. It's over there. We can just wall them off whatever they're going to whine. While meanwhile, millions of people are living without basic human rights under the thumb of the Israeli military and bureaucracy and with the support of Americans and many American constituencies. I'm kind of sitting with this weird disconnect as I see, you know, these deals celebrated. Not even like this real politic of like, oh, like there's, you know, like there's some bad thing, there's some good things. It's like, oh, this is this should be celebrated and promoted. Um, and just the disconnect of knowing the reality of, you know, behind it these deals and then, you know, the, the celebration of them in the public square.
that you can take to the bank. I think this is a really important conversation, especially just in our in our moment, because the past month has have has seen just so many different uh, really difficult headlines to read and, and events happening across the world of uh, that do feel like they're weighing us down. Um, you know, between Hurricane Ida and Afghanistan and Lebanon and division even our in our own communities at home. And as we're talking about, you know, the ongoing occupation in Israel-Palestine, and it, it can be so easy to be overwhelmed and to just not know how to engage any of it at all, much less stay engaged over the long haul and commit to ongoing activism um, on issues that, that fade from the news cycle. So I want to have a, a larger conversation about this. And then, Sharon, I want to draw you in here. Uh, do you do you ever feel a sense that it's just all too overwhelming and you don't know how to get started or even where to go? And and if so, how, how do you prioritize where to devote your energy and resources? How do you know when to say yes to one thing and necessarily no to another? I don't know that I necessarily can answer your question super satisfactorily, DCAT, but um, just a couple of thoughts that I have on that. Um, I think that, first of all, something that Greg has said a couple of times on this past podcasts about differentiating differentiating between short and long-term need. Um, I think that there's a lot that we can do in terms of short-term need that um, that's like these people need resources or funding or places to stay right now. And we can um, look at those and those are kind of easy wins to, maybe not wins is the right word, but easy things to do and kind of mobilize our community to do. Um, but I think the long-term engagement is harder, and that's kind of what I'll, I think, talk a little bit about how I kind of process this. Um, I think for our first principle of peacemaking, which is what Greg was kind of getting at in his last answer, is that change is always possible. And I think as a Christian, a lot of the times, either I or I see people in my community kind of throw up our hands and be like, well, there's going to be conflict in the world until Jesus comes again. So there's nothing we can really do about it. I'm just going to kind of bury my head in the sand and like do what I can and raise my kids and go to school and get a degree or whatever. And that's not necessarily bad. Um, The taking care of your own community first idea isn't necessarily a bad thing or impulse. Um, But I think this discounts what at least I believe is the Bible's invitation to help us or for us to be co-creators and co-reconcilers with Christ. Um, So we need to be actively working um, towards reconciliation and towards, I think, real peace. Um, So if we come back to the idea that change is always possible, um, we can recognize that change takes different forms. Um, It can be incremental change that you'd never, like so small that you can't really see it until um, in hindsight, maybe you can see how things have been changing over the last like 20 years. Um, but in the moment, it's hard to see. Or you can have monumental change, which seems like it's happening overnight. Um, but is in reality, I think, often a result of that incremental change. Um, like the fall of the Berlin Wall. I know Sarah has a lot that she could talk about <laughs> in terms of that. But talking to my parents and some of their friends, it's like nobody thought that that would happen until it happened. Um, And it was kind of like this overnight thing, but that was based on years of incremental change that led up to that happening. I think another two practices of peacemaking that Todd has mentioned in the past that can help is um, that you self-interrogate to see where your community is either at fault or bears some responsibility, and then own your own agency and responsibility um, 
in that kind of context. So, for example, we can look around the world and see situations where the U.S. is actively engaged in a conflict situation or a post-conflict situation. Um, so like Israel-Palestine or Afghanistan are really obvious examples of those. Um, and then we can dig into how our communities are involved in those areas, how they're talking about these things, if they're engaged in advocacy around them, if they're sending money towards them, and find areas for improvement and then go about advocating to our own families and communities to try and change how they're talking about these things. And I think going back to Israel-Palestine again, we've talked about how my community, the evangelical Christian community, has acted in ways that have harmed Palestinians and Israelis and prospects for sustainable peace um, through political advocacy or by giving to settler movements or by teaching congregants that Israel kind of has this divine right to do um, kind of whatever it wants and that Christians don't have a platform or the ability to question that um, from a theological standpoint. Um, and as a member of this community, I can speak to it and help those in my like immediate surroundings to understand how their actions are harming peace. Um, and this can be by having conversations with people. As somebody who works at Telos, um, selfishly, like I could try and get people on a trip, uh, on a TELUS trip, or invite them to our webinars or something like that to just really help them to understand how they're doing, what they're doing is harming what they, the communities that they think that they're helping. Um, and so those are just like a couple of really small examples. I don't know that I totally answered your question about like how to pick and choose, but I think this idea of starting at least with the things that you have some agency over um, or some involvement in, um, whether that's direct involvement of like you doing something or whether that's like your tax dollars through the U.S. government that are doing something. Sharon, what what is intriguing about that, how you frame that to me, was the lens what you used to make these decisions was actually through community more than just you as an individual picking which truths. And this is where uh, I learned so much from Sarah and from Greg and from Jack and from all of you about these issues where, where, where I could feel overwhelmed about the policy, just as we were talking about like these, these actors uh, in the political realm who are trying to do good for their own tribe. Um, the thing that's so powerful to me about this act of peacemaking is um, I learn from you all through community. So the way that I look at this conflict and the way that I look at peacemaking is through the lens of the community. And the community is bigger than just Christians. It's bigger than um, just evangelicals or liberals or conservatives. This community um, that we're a part of, of why we do the check-in is to actually kind of balance the way that we view things and ethically through the practices and principles of peacemaking. And just over and over again, what I'm encouraged by from even this call now, when I finally get to like, okay, what's like bringing me back here is I'm being brought back to like the relationships on the ground and what are the things that are keeping people going. So Jack and Sarah, as I think of this, like what's bringing me hope is like, what's happening right now at the table? Like Sarah, I know I'm not trying to just do a plug, but like you can talk a little bit about like what is what is Telus doing on the ground? And Jack, you can talk about like those who are young, too old. It's a diverse group of people that are on the ground that are actually working for peace and justice. And it's done relationally. It's done through these principles and practices of peacemaking. So as much as I can get down about, as Greg was talking about, just like the the hollow cold version of peace i do get inspired by this community i think it's a great point and sharon i loved also what you were saying about finding the places where our communities are involved 
um, and identifying those as the places to, to get active. One, one tension I do experience in that process, though, is, is that as I'm engaging with the complicity of my own community in injustice, I think my, my quick response often is just anger. And I'm frustrated, I'm angry at the ways that, that I, one, didn't even know that these things were happening. Then two, the people that I, you know, believe I'm a part of and I belong to a community are part of, you know, the perpetuation of injustice. And so, but then I also often follow that, that anger with self-criticism because it can feel like that anger is counterproductive. And, and Sarah, I want to draw you in here. I'm curious to know, do you think that anger has a place? And if so, where might it fit in? Um, how do you do work through that tension? I think anger absolutely has to have a place in all of this, in part because when we encounter a mass injustice, how can we not feel angry? And so for me, it becomes a question of what do we do with that anger? Where is it directed? Where is it aimed? What do we do with it? And sometimes the answer is we just sit in it for a while and let it be what it is, because to jump right to that self-criticism, I think, doesn't always give anger its weight when it needs that weight. But then I, I lean into the idea that growth change is always possible. I think what you named DCAT, that anger at being complicit in especially systems that we didn't know we were complicit in, belonging to communities that have historically or ongoing done harm to other communities. Like there is opportunity in that anger as well. And so leaning into what's the what's the underlying emotion or cause of that anger. If it's a sense of complicity, we have the opportunity to own our agency and responsibility to self-interrogate and advocate. And that's where I think the, the joyous implication we sometimes talk about comes in. Anger itself isn't bad, but what we choose to do with that anger is really important because oftentimes anger can also fuel hate. And so if we stay with anger and we let the anger fester and aim it towards other people, that's where I think that it's an unproductive emotion because it's furthering conflict and discord rather than becoming a tool or an opportunity for us to lean into peacemaking. And like, I, I personally, I feel a lot of anger. Um, and I, I don't think that that's a bad thing, but it's, it's not an emotion that I want to let overwhelm me. It's one that I've used to fuel the drive to continue on the path of peacemaking, especially when it's overwhelming and I feel like the cynicism is beckoning. But just knowing, right, that like I still have the capacity to feel that deeply and to care that deeply about injustice means that I also have the capacity for hope. And if we take seriously Mitri Rahab's quote that hope is what you do, for me, that comes back and drives a lot of the action I take to try and work to address the things that are making me angry. Sarah, I think that's so helpful because um, it kind of relates back to what David was saying about community and sort of how, how we negotiate some of these emotions in healthy ways. And I think anger is one that we should actually claim and own. Like if you're not angry when you see certain things happening, something is wrong, right? But like what we do with that anger, as you said, is important and how we can leverage that for our community to do something productive is helpful. And not only is it helpful, it's how we get to that word that we sometimes talk about on on this podcast, which sometimes can feel so heavy and like self-righteous and like, well, you know, but joy, like the joy of implicate, like the joy comes from doing great stuff with great people in your community. It comes like, you know, with Jack, like has this community of incredible change agents and peacemaking Carly on the ground in Israel, Palestine and getting to do stuff with them is joyous. It's so much fun, you know, whereas talking about this stuff or just doing it individually, you feel isolated. So. I think, Sarah, as I hear you, I'm, I'm hearing that that conversation almost between you 
and David that perhaps some of how we negotiate both anger and find joy is through community. Is that is that right? I think it's super important. I mean, none of us can do this on our own. When we do this on our own, we don't have reminders of what that joy looks like, and it's really easy to sink into despair. And I, David mentioned earlier the Tellus Tables program, and I do want to say a little bit about that because that's something that our network does that gives me so much hope too. And our Tellus Tables program are, are groups of Tellus alumni or people who've gotten connected to the network who are going into their communities and forming table groups who want to become better peacemakers, who want to get active as peacemakers and align their actions with their values and start doing something about everything they've learned about and everything that we talk about at Telos. And to me, that gives me so much hope because it's people who have engaged with Telos, who have learned from us, who continue to teach us as well in what they do, who then take this back to their communities and aren't doing this alone, but are doing this with people who want to be on the on the path that is peacemaking. And it's, you know, maybe this is just me, me my opinion, not Telos's opinion, but I really feel like it is a journey and not a destination. As we think about what it means to become peacemakers, it means continually being evolving continuing self-interrogation, continuing to get active. And to me, the, the communities that commit to doing this together is one of the best ways to make this sustainable because you have people who, who will hold you in your anger, but also will celebrate and joy with you on those moments where we do make change. Sarah, I just want to emphasize that that table is also an opportunity that folks listening to this podcast can get involved with. Um, reach out to us at Telos, send us an email, reach out to us over social media. I'll include some information in the show notes for you to be able to learn more about that program. And one other way to get involved is that in the next two weeks, we're actually having a series um, of webinars on the issue of child attention, which is an issue that for me at least also inspires frustration, anger, all of the kinds of emotions, but together we are working through those and learning how to engage in a way that pushes us towards a future of mutual flourishing. So learn more about those events also on our website, and we hope to see you there. I wanna add one point here. Actually, three points. Sorry, it's me. But they'll be very quick, I promise. <laughs> it's about sort of like the posture of um, dealing with this. And so I'm, I want to zoom out um, and say that, you know, yes, this stuff feels overwhelming. So three things. One, lean in. Two, manage expectations. And three, stay curious. So what do I mean by that? I mean, lean in not just to the issue, but lean into those things and those people that you love. Being a peacemaker isn't about uh, taking off the glasses and seeing all the horrible stuff in the world. We're doing this so that everybody can enjoy and participate fully in the world, including us. And so that's where we get our energy from, so much of it. And don't be ashamed of also really leaning in to your life and those people and those things that give you joy, apart from the hard work of peacemaking, which is also joyous at times too. Second, expectations. I think this is a huge thing for peacemakers. Ego. When we put our ego into play and it's all about getting that win or like, oh, they've been fighting for thousands of years or they're going to be fighting, you know, these myths that we say to, you know, absolve ourselves from responsibility. What we're doing is we're really leading with our ego and we have this expectation that like, oh, well, you know, fighting against slavery is only worth doing if I'm going to help win and end it. You know, like this idea that somehow we have to be a hero in this situation rather than so many of these situations that we were born into are going to be there in some way when we're gone. And so it's it's not about us, but it is about 
what we do now. Do we say, okay, yeah, I see, I'm implicated, I'm responsible, so I'm gonna do my part. So the point there is manage your expectations that this is not yours to solve. You didn't create all of this um, and you're not gonna solve all of this. You're not gonna be the hero. But among community, we will be able to advance something forward substantially and meaningfully. And that's worth fighting for. Doing the right thing is always the right thing to do. And finally, curiosity. I think for me, I know um, sometimes like I feel overwhelmed when it's just like, oh man, there's like that, this is just hard. But like staying curious when you can and approaching things as an opportunity to learn more about something you didn't know. Like I've past a um, couple years, I've been learning about the Caribbean, for example, and just all these like horrible, horrible stories and all these wonderful things. And the way that I've managed it is like, I love to read. So, you know, that's one thing that like, I'm like, oh, I get to read about all these amazing characters and stories and people and themes that I never knew anything about. And having that sort of like mindset of curiosity brings in a positive element which is not so weighty it reminds me that this is something that like i'm just like you know i'm i'm at the beginning of but like staying curious and having those curious conversations and those curious engagements that really does wonders for our emotional health because otherwise it's just like ah, end of the world and it's not the world keeps turning it keeps spinning like but how are we going to turn how are we going to spin on it are we going to help move things towards a better place are we going to live according to our values like that's the question and even when it feels feels overwhelming especially when it feels overwhelming even impossible that's when we seek peace and pursue it